Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, director, and actor Benny Safty. Up until a couple years ago, Benny had primarily been one half of a directing duo alongside his brother, Josh. Together, they made pulse-pounding, anxiety-inducing films like Daddy Long Legs, Good Time, and most recently, Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler. But then, suddenly, over this past summer in GQ magazine, Benny announced that he wouldn't be co-directing the next movie with his brother. The split, he said, is a natural progression for how things have happened. And really, what's happened is that, since the pandemic, Benny has emerged as an excellent supporting actor. Since 2021, he's been enlisted by auteurs like Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Claire Denis for Stars at Noon, and of course, Christopher Nolan for what has become a best picture frontrunner in Oppenheimer. His latest project is called The Curse, which Benny co-created with comedian Nathan Fielder. Set in a small New Mexico town, the show follows a newlywed couple struggling to bring their vision for eco-conscious housing to life. Their seemingly well-intentioned efforts, emphasis on seemingly, are then complicated by Dougie, a reality TV producer played by Safty, who sees a potential HGTV program in their story. Here's a clip from the trailer. 
There's no such thing as a perfect city, but to me, this city is as close as it comes. That's why we're proud to call Española my home. Oh, shit. Our home. All right, you got it. Oh, okay. God. This isn't your typical home-flipping show. My homes are reflecting the local communities. Come on. <laughs> and we're husband and wife. This is Kevin <laughs> So what could go wrong? <laughs> Grab a quick shot of you um, giving money to that little girl over there. We're doing good here. We are good people. Thank you. We're really good. Got it. So all I had on me was that $100 bill. No refunds. That's not fair. It Come is on. Fair. Let me go get change and. What is that? That's nothing. This is, you don't need to see this. Why did you snatch back the money? Why didn't you just give her the 100 I was going to buy six of them for $20. I curse you. What did she say? That was from The Curse. You can stream new episodes of the show every Friday at midnight on Paramount Plus or the Showtime On Demand app. We untangle this new show a bit more at the top of our conversation, but it's a fitting next step for Safdie, who's long interrogated our ideas of authenticity and realism in film. It's an obsession that dates back to childhood, he told me coming of age in the 1990s as Josh and him split time between his father in Queens and his mother in Manhattan. We talk about all that as well. And then finally, we discuss Benny's affinity for Fielder's previous program, Nathan For You, his full circle moment of playing an astrophysicist in Oppenheimer, and how making deeply personal films has reconfigured the way he views his past and his present. That's all coming up next with actor, writer, and director, Benny Safdie. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t now. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Benny Safdie. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you as well. How are you feeling? I am okay. A little tired. Best way to start a podcast. Yes. No, no, no. It's, uh, I was actually just thinking of, there was a stand-up that I used to do as a character, Ralph Handel. Mm-hmm. And one of the opening jokes was, hey, everybody, how you all doing? And everybody's like, woo. And then I'd be like, how am I? <laughs> and then everybody would wait for the punchline. I'd say, hey, I'm a little tired, a little hungry, but I'm okay. Can we start with this new show of yours? It's called The Curse. Yes. You uh, co-created it with Nathan Fielder. Yes. But Fielder is someone whose work you've long admired, right? Because yes. Back in 2016, <laughs> you wrote an essay in Cinemascope. Yes. About his show, Nathan For Pretty You. Pretty long, too. I was watching Nathan For You when it was linear. Right. I was waiting week to week for this thing. And this was about Smokers Aloud. Yes. Which I thought was an unbelievable thing. And it was just, I don't know, it was interesting because I'm obsessed with realism you know Mm -hmm. and so that's part of just something that's always in my head and then when i saw that episode i was like oh this guy is also into something kind of similar you know and i was really excited by that um but in so in this essay which i'm happy to quote from uh, go for it you write when you become obsessed with creating realism you create something fake fielder is truly a national treasure he has somehow melded jacques tati and mark cuban so when so that's pretty good, it's pretty good. So, so that's what I want to ask you. I want to start here. When the curse came together, how did you reimagine this collaboration between the two of you? Did he play Tati and you played like James Dolan? It's funny because after this, he had seen, I think it was Good Time. Doesn't take the bait on the Dolan slander. No, no, okay. please, please. I love the Knicks. We're figuring things out. And I think we're going to be a good team this year. They've been figuring things out. Way like my mom would say, I'm figuring things out with your third stepfather. Yes, but eventually things will work (laughs) out. You'll find the right person, you'll click, and then you'll have a happy life together. I'll send this tape to my mom. (laughs) So, um, But so basically what happened was, is we kind of just met up as mutual, I guess, fans of one another. And every time I was out in LA, we would just meet up and and talk. and, And it was just in these initial meetings that kind of, we came up with the idea for the show, just like accidentally. You said that like it was a question. Yeah. Well, because it's like it was weird because as we came up with it, we were like, nah, this isn't going to work. You know, it was so backhanded, offhand that we kind of just let it go. And then we would text one another, just compounding on the idea every once in a while. And I think at some point we were like, I think we have to make this thing. <laughs> you know, that's kind of where it ended up. So now that it's out in the world and, and it's being released every week, how would you explain what this is? Oof. 
I don't know if I want that responsibility. Um, I guess it's it's about I, it's it's hard because I don't want to I don't want to like um, pigeonhole it into any specific. If I do this for you as an act of generosity, yes, maybe then I'll I'll, I'll jump in and I'll you'll add. Have to return. All right. Okay. So it's set in New Mexico. Yes. In a town called Española. Yes. There's a couple, the Seagulls, played by Fielder and Emma Stone. And they're creating a sort of HGTV pilot. Okay, so here now I can take over because I, I thought you wanted me to get really deep and like philosophical about it. I can summarize. We start okay. on the surface okay. and then we go deeper. So, so essentially it's about Whitney and Asher Siegel. They have a HGTV show and they want to kind of figure out a way to increase the environmental sustainability of a community, mm -hmm. but doing so without any consequences regarding gentrification or anything in that neighborhood. So they try their hardest to not do that. The show is called? The show is called Fliplanthropy, and it's a mix of flipping homes and fliplanthropy. Fli philanthropy. You know, it's like from now on, now I can't even think of the word philanthropy without saying fliplanthropy. After watching the show, you almost never want to think of philanthropy ever again. Ever again, because philanthropy is now, is it a, I guess it's a bad word. It's cursed. Yeah, it's cursed. And so it's, it's funny because there was a long, a long discussion between me and Nathan. Is it fliplanthropy or fliplandthropy? And we wanted to have the D or not have the D. It was a very long discussion. Regardless, the logline is saving the world one kilowatt at a time. Which is true. And then I play the producer of that said show. And the curse follows us as we move through the town of Española in New Mexico, mm. Santa Fe, and what it's like to just kind of um, be in that area. So that's the surface description. Yes. And it's funny. It's and funny. And it's scary. And it's sad. Basically, what happened was, is I was like, oh, so what was it like when you first moved to L.A.? And he's like, oh, I was I had just moved here. and I didn't even have an American cell phone because I don't know if anybody knows Nathan Fielder is from Canada. Yes. So famous. Um, yeah. And he needed to get a new cell phone. So he on his way to the cell phone store, somebody asked him for money and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't have anything. And then they said to him, I curse you. And he kind of took that, went on to the, the store and it made him feel very uncomfortable. So he then left went to an ATM, took out $20 and gave it to the person who was on the street and said, is the curse lifted? And they said, yes, it is. So then the conversation became, well, what if it wasn't? What if she wasn't there? You know, mm -hmm. I said to him, like, what if you went to the ATM and came back and the person wasn't there? Then would the curse still be there? Right. Would it affect your mental state for the rest of your life? That was the seed of it. And then, and then we realized that became a good kind of template for something. And... I guess at the time I had been in a doctor's office a lot because I guess it was my wife was their first child and I was there a lot. I was sitting in the waiting room and it was just HGTV all the time. House Hunters, Flip or Flop, all these other things. And what you end up seeing is, is that, yes, it's reality television, right? but there's only so much you can hide from the cameras. You can get a kind of really good sense of the relationships between the two people in the show. Right. You know, you can really understand if there's marital issues or if there's tension because they're not really spending that much time. They're really moving quickly. So you could get at like little glances and you'll understand who they are. And that's also just in Nathan's work in general. So it kind of, again, was was this amazing synergy between the two of us of like, OK, what can we bring to this? And it was an amazing kind of collaboration. You mentioned your character, Dougie. Dougie Schechter. Glad we have the full name on record here. <laughs> He's this long-haired producer with, with rectangular glasses. Yes. Who's especially good 
at seeding conflict Mm -hmm. between the central couple, played by Fielder and Emma Stone. He's good at manipulating the setting and sometimes even recreating events and filming them as if they were happening extemporaneously. And I wonder, did playing this part bring you back to your early upbringing in Queens, where your father would often instigate trouble the way Dougie does, creating home movies with you and your brother Josh, waking you up in the middle of the night to reenact fights you had the day before. I'm thinking, when you're making this new show, were you brought back to all of that? Yeah, it's definitely, well, I I grew up in Queens and Upper West Side, Manhattan, but I don't know where I'm pulling what from. There's definitely probably something like that in there. Um, Dougie's this guy who always wants everybody to be happy, you know, and that means he'll say one thing to one person and another thing to the other person. And then he believes both exactly the same. And then when he's on his own, (laughs) both of those disappear. So he truly is a mover and a shaker in that sense. And I think he just really wants to be successful. His ambition there is just kind of naked and he will literally, whatever I got to do to make this thing interesting or fun, because what I'm watching here sucks. So it's like, I just want to do the best thing I can. And hey, that's conflict. You know, I got to find out the conflict here. And I guess with regards to the home movie, yeah, he just wanted to make something interesting, you know, but it is my home. You mean your father? Yeah. Did you find it interesting? As a kid? Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. You know, it's like, I was just like, what? I'm waking up and what are you filming me for? And it, it is interesting. I do the same thing with my two sons. I'll film them. And every once in a while, they're like, what's going on? What are you filming me for? We're literally doing nothing. But I'm always like, okay, this is going to be interesting for them in some way because I'm more appreciative of it now. That's kind of what I want to talk. Yeah. I want to talk about growing up because now you're a father. Yeah. And I wonder if you've been like reprocessing some of those memories. Well, I definitely had a playbook of what not to do, but there is just this idea that everything can be interesting in some way, right. you know? But then again, that goes back to, you can look at certain movies, you know, you have the neorealist movies, you have the Iranian cinema, where all of these people are making movies about reality or they're with people they know. You have Bicycle Thieves literally using the people coming out of the stadium and incorporating that into the show or into the movie. And so I guess there's this idea that your life can be interesting or whatever it is that you're experiencing or feeling is important. And so if it's just a matter of how you frame it. I want to understand, it's like growing up, your father would often say that the answers to life's questions are found in movies. He never said that. (laughs) He never said that. Josh phrased it once as that. That was an interpretation. Okay, an interpretation. Because I don't think he was as aware of what he was doing there. He was just filming. Right. I think that's an important distinction, though, is that he was never like, this is what I'm doing. Right. I'm making this. I'm making that. It was just a byproduct of that. But when your parents separate, yeah. he does show you Kramer versus Kramer. Well, we, we they, I, they were separated from when I was very young. Right. So six it, months? Yes. So basically at one point when things were getting back into us kind of going back with our, our mom, he showed us Kramer versus Kramer, right. yes, to um, frame the situation positively in his favor. <laughs> so, so. This is propaganda. Yes, 100% propaganda. And that's not fair. You know, it's like, I'm too young. I shouldn't be watching. I shouldn't even be watching the movie now. It's so traumatizing. But um, (laughs) it's it's great. When you watched that film. Yeah. 
and you were going back and forth between like Queens and Manhattan. Yeah. How did you make sense of what you were watching? As a kid, it's simple. It's not, I guess now when you watch it, you see the, um, the complexities of it. But as a kid, he's good, she's bad. That's what you get. Right. <laughs> so that's what he knew was going to happen. So it's Did like, you believe that in your life about your own parents? No, of course not. Right. You know, that was what I was told in that moment. And so, of course, she was very upset. And of course, my stepfather's <laughs> upset where he's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you coming here with this, like, this attitude? And then everybody finds out and it's, it's definitely insane. But as a kid, you, you, you associate yourself with the kid in the movie. And the kid in the movie is sad. So that's what you feel. This is a clip from the 1979 film Kramer versus Kramer. I don't understand. Well, the problem is, is that your mommy and I both want you to live with us. See? So that's why we decided to go see this man who, who I told you is the judge. And, and we let him decide because he's very wise and experienced about these things. See, we talked to him for a few days. And, and after that, we asked him what he thought. You know what he said? He agreed with mommy. He thought it would be a terrific idea if, if you move in with her and live there from now on. And I'm really lucky because I get to have dinner with you once a week. And two times a month, we spend the weekends together. Where's my bed gonna be? Where am I gonna sleep? Oh, well, Mommy's figured that all out. You have your own bedroom at her place? Where are all my toys gonna be? The Mommy's. We're gonna take all your toys over there. If you play your cards out of it, she'll buy you some new ones. Who's going to read me my bedtime stories? Mommy will. You're not going to kiss me tonight anymore, are you, Dad? No, I, w I won't be able to do that. But, you know, I'll, I'll get to visit. Are your parents divorced? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I was going to say, your parents split up six months. Mine were ten months. Okay. You are the first guest to oh, ever wow. beat me. <laughs> Well, this is the way it's, I say it's it is. It's the worst race to run. It is. It's the worst. Well, think about it as a race to existence. <laughs> we just snuck in. Clearly something happened where it was like either let's give it one yeah. more shot or whoops. Like, yes. I guess let's see how this pans out. <laughs> Not going to work. It's had its effect on me in some Well, way. you've made a lot of films <laughs> yes. about it. Yes. To go back to that, what I said before, it's all... It, if there's a kernel of truth within inside of you or whatever, mm -hmm. it's easier to talk about or make something because you understand where it's coming from, you know? So that's just like, what's my motivation? <laughs> you know, growing up with a video camera always around, recreating events, living out moments of your life on tape yeah. when you didn't know you were being filmed, obviously that would tie into later movies that you two would make. Mm -hmm. But do you remember the first time you and Josh commandeered the camera and, and like began making your own projects well there was a weird smoking commercial i remember and it was just like we knew he watched the tape so we did something to like <laughs> like a psa yeah it was something like that but i think that there's something about i guess that's early 90s that this was happening and i guess that was the first consumer cameras that were out there so i think a lot of people from that time period did grow up under this idea that there's more accessibility to something that felt so far away. And, and again, there was also this weird moment, I think, early on when point and shoot cameras started having video on them and people didn't necessarily know when they were being filmed. So there was a lot of honesty that you could capture. I think people now are a little bit more aware of cameras and stuff like that. But 
there's been kind of, so there was this moment where nobody knew they were filming. Then there was this moment where everybody <laughs> knew that they were being filmed and they were always on watch and always vigilant. And now I feel like there's this, yeah, I'm being filmed. I'm just going to say, right. fuck it. I'm just going to live my life. I don't care. That's it. So yeah, we've been worn down. Exactly. So it's like, I can't. And it's the kind of thing also, it's like, I, I remember there was one time where I was in, I guess I was on Bleecker Street and I walked by where Robert Frank lived mm. and I saw him on his bed laid back in repose. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Love Robert Frank. I also take photographs. I happen to have my medium format camera with me. So I take out my camera and I go to take a picture of him in this kind of state. And some hand comes in and says, how dare you? And she slams the door. And the picture I ended up getting was of this hand pulling the door closed. It wasn't him who slammed the door, but whoever closed the door, I was like, this is what he did all the time. Right. You know, he, all he did was sneak photos of people. That was like the first version of the home video camera. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact once the camera was given to people and you can capture, I think Gary Winograd is a good example where you have all of these photos of interesting things, mm -hmm. people, and they're captured in a way that is just like, oh my God, that's artistic, that's art or whatever, or maybe it's not, maybe it's just, but he had a very specific, specific knack for finding these, these moments. And Lee Friedlander's one, William Eggleston, Joel Meyerowitz, you know, you have all the Helen Levitt, you have all these people who were finding these moments. And at that time, it was very weird to have a camera and go and take pictures of, right. in Helen Levitt's case, a whole family crammed into a phone booth, you know, like that's an amazing picture and it's an amazing moment. And you could even say it's an amazing movie because you can see all the people's emotions on their faces. So there is this idea of watching and being watched that's definitely in the curse you know that there's this idea that somebody's always there looking you know i would say that naturalistic impromptu spirit is embedded in all the movies you've made yeah <laughs> and so like in the beginning you talked about how you your dad used film as like a tool for propaganda at some point when you two start working you and josh did it feel like an act of rebellion did you did you feel like you were creating in contrast to that? I guess with, with the, the propaganda element was just, you can, for better or worse, use movies to connect to your emotional state of mind. I think you can go to the Russians and see that they looked at movies as a way to essentially as a, a, a form of warfare, you know, and like propaganda where you have all these films that are speaking about the Russian way of life and this idea of the power of movies to tell you what to feel and think. And so it's in that long lineage of things. And it was just a matter of um, you're trying to understand stuff. You can make it up. You can mess around and you, you just want to understand what's sometimes it might be. Oh, how do I say this better in this technology? Or is this funny? If I hold it here, is this good? You know, so you're just kind of trying to understand it. You just have to always be looking around and, and listening. And, and when you cast somebody, that changes things. And I think specifically with The Curse, we were told like, oh, you can't really cast real people right. in, in a television show. It's different in a movie because it's a one-time thing or whatever. But like in a show that's over 70 days, it's going to be very difficult. I'm like, why? What's the big deal? So it became that like if somebody was submitting a tape, the more vertical video that you got on the street that's what we looked for mm -hmm. was somebody who never ever thought about being in a movie or a tv show or anything that's who we wanted in the show 
And so we cast a lot of people just from the area. And then as you're doing that, you're talking to them, you're trying to understand, you're changing things with them. So Nathan and I were always rewriting it to Mm -hmm. fit the people who we were casting. It's just, again, it goes back to this idea that you can use this to understand people or things better. By literally incorporating people. I mean, again, your body of work is going from daddy long legs to heaven knows what. Mm -hmm. The short films before that. The implementation of, of street casting. Yeah. With you and, you know, and so important. Jen Venditti and yeah. all those people. Where do you think that came from? Is that is that the Brisson yeah. naturalism? Yeah, I think it's there's there's the Brisson, there's the neorealist, you know, and it's also in these in these documentaries from the 60s. You have all these like I think if you look at high school, which I actually just showed at NYU, I played high, Wiseman's High School. There's this one moment where this this father is in the principal's office and he's so upset that his daughter got a failing grade on her exam. And yet on the paper, the teacher wrote the word fabulous, (laughs) something like that. And he's sitting there and he's got this really small shirt, tie, like literally his, he's a massive, like a big, strong guy. And he's sitting in the chair and he could barely like move because his tie, he's going to the principal. So he put on his tie and he put on his button down and he's sitting there and he's in just complete disbelief and he's like she said fabulous she said it what's going on here i don't understand she gets an f but fabulous what's going on and he won't stop but he's such a character so there's this idea that people kind of are iconographic of themselves in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways and so you can use that to enhance the emotions of of a story and in the early short films i remember i was like okay here i am and if I'm going to be in them, I have a relationship with this person just purely on a level of practicality. I know I can get a good performance because we're friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like we can just talk. We can forget about that thing over in the corner filming this. Those early first three films, in terms of the dynamic between you and Josh, you said once that we help each other see something different, a full vision of truth. He'll let me see things I don't see, and I'll help him see things he doesn't see. We complement each other. We fill in each other's blind spots. How would you describe your blind spots, and how would you describe his? I guess, it, it like, for example, with, let's just take Daddy Longlegs, for example. I was very quick to be critical of my father for the things that he did, and he would be more forgiving of those said things, and... By putting those two perspectives together, you're able to get kind of a, a truer portrait right. because you're not just saying this is bad and you're not just saying this is the best thing in the world. So it's just a matter of complementing uh, different points of view and just taking that into consideration, really, which some people don't do. You know, it's my way or the highway is a lot of people's mentalities. Mm-hmm. So just this idea that you can get at a deeper thing through uh, that collaboration, you know? There's a line in a 2012 short film of yours, The Black Balloon. Yes. And a character says, I love you as a human being, but I hate you as a person. (laughs) Yeah. You can like the idea of somebody and hate them. I think (laughs) think that's probably, you know, that you can can think back and be like, oh, because I guess also with distance comes that, you know, that where you're, I don't know if you've ever had somebody in your life where you're like, the longer you go without seeing them, 
you're like, oh, I really miss that person. Right. And then you see them and you're like, oh, fuck that person. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of that. Or it's the moment you're in the room, you remember everything it was that made you so upset or angry. There's that phrase, so and so, something makes the heart grow fonder, right? Distance. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's very true. Yeah. And familiarity breeds contempt. Yes, exactly. So these are cliches for a reason. Right. So I think that's what that means there. Guys, do you have this quote that's been really nagging me this whole week? I want to understand it. You mentioned Daddy Longlegs. You said the whole point of Daddy Longlegs was to relive our childhood, but it kills it at the same time. What was that like? Well, what was that like? What, to kill your childhood? Yeah, I mean, That's therapy, (laughs) right? That's therapy is you're reliving it to kind of close it up and understand it. Because there's a lot of loose ends and loose emotions and... By going in and trying to, I guess I said, what did I say, recreating it is... Yeah, uh, when you become obsessed with creating realism, yes, you create something fake. Yes, so it, it kind of ties into that where once you're going so deep into the understanding of where something comes from right. and how do you do it, to get that how do you do it to the level of something on the screen, there's so many steps that you have to break down. Who's it going to be? How are they going to say it? What are the lines they're going to say? When then when they say the lines, that sounds bad. You got to change it. So you're literally getting so granular into the actual thing that it's dead, <laughs> you know? So you forget the original emotion that was there because now it's this new different thing. It's and complicated it's, by a more technical process. Yeah. Once you put it all out there and you look at it and you try and understand it, you're, you, you get granular in a way that kind of kills the haziness of it. A memory is such a beautiful thing, but it's also very sad because you're never going to be able to go back there. So you have this this fleeting moment of recognition, and it's sad. It's sad when that's away, but when you when you think of nostalgia, you have that moment, and then it's still nostalgic because it would be one thing if you're like, okay, I'm going to completely recreate that exact moment. I want to create deja vu. Whenever you go and try and do that, it's not the same. No. You know, you can go back and watch the shows that you watched as a kid, but it's not going to be in the same exact situation and feeling that you're in that you watched it. And I don't know, with Daddy Long, this was very important because it was confronting a lot of things that maybe weren't confronted. Like what? Emotional childhood stuff. You know, it's not it's not fun. It's a hard. Yeah. I rewatched it. It's um, there's specifically there's like an argument that's happening on the phone in front of the two kids that I just was like, it's intense. Sage, what's shaking? (laughs) What's happening, kiddo? Very good. Very good. Listen, 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 listen. Um, You put your mom on. Will you put your mom on for me? Okay. here she is. It's dad. Lenny? Well, you know, it's six o'clock. I'm making dinner. What's up? Um, I've got Carmen coming tomorrow. No, 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 but tomorrow is a half day, and I've got plans to take the kids to see my folks this weekend. Okay, so it's not gonna happen. It's a half day. Right, and I've paid Carmen in advance. She's coming to get the kids, so it's not gonna work. I, I understand that you miss the kids. That's great. But you know what? Frankly, you're lucky you even see the kids. What I look at in my life is like, there's certain things that happen to you and allow you to understand them. Because I feel like if I was on one track, 
I'd have no way of making sense of this. You know, mm -hmm. I'd be in a total, I'd be in, a, in the corner drooling, you know, which sometimes I am. But when I went with to my mom and my stepfather, it was a very different world. You know, it was a very much more structured and it allowed me like this kind of safe place to then look back and understand what was good, what was bad. And then as like a coping mechanism, though, I'm going to just look at this good stuff, you know, mm. and then later on in life, you look at the bad stuff and, but it allowed me the ability to put, put a sentence together, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> you've put a series of, of compelling sentences together. I appreciate that. Just now. <laughs> We'll be right back with actor, writer, and director, Benny Safdie. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great tasting, all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. After you made Long Legs, there's um, Heaven Knows What, which... Robert Pattinson fell in love with to the point where he emailed you out of the blue and asked to work on something. Mm -hmm. But until that point, you and Josh were trying to find your way in New York making movies. And this is how your collaborator, Ronnie Bronstein, described those years. Before Pattinson showed up, we'd been existing like a strand of saliva hanging from a barnyard animal, blowing in the wind, waiting to snap. Um... There's the saliva again. Yeah, there's the saliva. Is that what it felt like? 
Well, no, there was definitely so after Daddy Long Legs, like, oh great, got this thing, Spirit Award, you're you're in the you're in the industry, and then it's just fall flat on your face. You know, literally, I stood in front of IFC Center with a billboard over my body, like one of those sandwich boards, convincing people to go into our movie over Ken Loesch's movie, which is what IFC was putting all their money behind, because I was dedicated to making our movie held over in theaters. So I would literally stand online and tell people, what are you seeing? And they'd say, oh, I'm going to go see this. And I said, oh, you should think about going to Daddy Long's. They said, why? And I was like, well, I made it. You should go see it. And they were just like, excuse me? And I remember the IFC people like, oh, this is cute. This guy is like, it's a little, some sort of a... Um, Entrepreneurial? It wasn't entrepreneurial. I think they were a little bit more dismissive of it. Like, oh, isn't this cute? He's going to be here for a couple, like an hour, and then he's going to leave. I was there for eight hours a day. Committed. I had a spot in their in their <laughs> closet where I would keep my stuff, and I would come back the next day and do the same thing because I was. It had to be held over, and I think it played in that theater for a long, long time. But it was just it, that's where I was kind of first confronted with this idea that like just because there's something that you find interesting doesn't mean the world is going to discover it. Right. They need to find out that this thing exists. You know, like we all thought making that, that this was going to be divorce 50% of people. We were convinced this was going to be like the TBS movie of the week, you know, and but it it wasn't. So, but it did, it did give us something. But then when that didn't work out, you're just like, okay, well, now what? You're kind of back to square zero and you're trying to make something, you know, then I think there was a documentary, uh, Lenny Cook, that started, that was in that process. And then that took a long time, three, four years to right. finish that. So each movie you make, you're like, okay, now this is the, this is going to be the springboard and it's not. And then you kind of fail. And it came to me basically right after good time where it was like, okay, I just had my first son. If this doesn't work out, it's over. I'm not going to be making movies anymore because it's not fair. It's not fair to my wife who was working. It was almost like this fallacy that I had because everybody was, we kept doing all this stuff and it kept kind of, it had an impact, but it wasn't allowing me to make a living, you know? So I had to confront that and say, well, what is it? And so if that didn't work, it would have snapped and it would have been all over, if you know? If good time didn't work. Yeah, you know, so, but each one was just enough to get a little bit more, but even but with heaven knows what, it was less money than daddy long legs. So it was it was going backwards. And then the, the documentary was nothing. You know, it was just we had um, gotten this footage from the producer and he had been filming Lenny back then. And he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Can you help me? And then an old family friend of yours. Yes. This guy, Adam Shopcorn. And he he had all this stuff, but he stopped filming after he didn't make it into the draft. It was like, ugh, like that. So what happened? That was became the question. And then you have to sit with it and figure out how to best tell that story. But it's funny because the story of Lenny Cook is this young basketball player yeah. who was like high school ranked, yeah. played against LeBron and, and Carmelo Anthony, was better than them at times. Yeah. And the story is, is heartbreaking in many ways because it doesn't work out the way mm -hmm. you'd hope it would. Lost potential is one of the most upsetting things, specifically in America. Yes. But it happens very quick for him. Yeah. And what you're describing for, for you and Josh is that it happened in like fits and starts. It was gradual. Yeah. Well, I guess because think about it. 2008 is when we made Daddy Long Legs. Good Time came out 2016. Right. And then Uncut Gems came out in 2019. That's a long time. It's almost 11 years. You know, when I, when I, when I looked back on Daddy Long Legs, I was like, oh, my God, that was 10 years ago. That was 2018. I remember there was in 2014, I think it was, or it might, yeah, it might have been 2014. 
Yes, because it was right before Cosmo, my son, was born. I went to Melbourne and I they did a retrospective of our of our stuff. And I was really kind of like weirded out by that because I'm like, is this it? This is the end? Like, what are they doing? And it would just felt very strange because it was weird because, yes, like these fits and starts. I didn't. I was like, oh, wow. And I'd, we'd made all these short films and it was just kind of. We were always trying to figure something out. You know, we right. were constantly moving forward, trying to just experiment. But up until good time, you said this thing, if it doesn't work here, it's not fair to my family. It's not yes. fair to my wife. Yes. When you would have those conversations with her, would she go, maybe it's time for something else? Well, it, that was it was me saying, because it was just, Cosmo was two weeks, two weeks old when we started shooting Good Time. And then I was literally editing with the baby monitor on his naps because mm-hmm. I was at home editing on that. And then I'd bring the foot, we, Ronnie and I was editing other scenes and we, that we were literally working separately, but I was working out of home from home. And I just was like, okay, it's not fair that like she can't experience this the same way that I am. And I'm I kind of felt like I was like a deadbeat in a lot of ways, even though I was making stuff, there was just something about like, okay, if this doesn't work, it's like, how long am I going to keep going thinking that this is like, it's definitely like, oh, you always say like, keep going, do what you love, all the thing. But when you're confronted with the realities of the world, mm. sometimes I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't fair for her to keep carrying me. You know, I was like, all right, maybe I'll take a break and I'll, I, hey, I wanted to be a physicist when I, before film. So maybe I'll go and go back and do that. So I, I it was just, because there's a lot of stuff that comes up when you have a kid and also just like motherhood and 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 she was working and she had you only get four months or three months of paternity of maternity leave and that's not a lot of time and you're leaving just as the kid is starting to kind of really see the world and it's a very hard place to be right you know to watch that and then to leave and then it was like it was the kind of thing where i was with him so there was this kind of there was something nice there but it was just i felt guilty you know <laughs> That's the, the yeah. normal feeling. Yeah. So post good time, it, it works out. You're sort of like fortified in this pursuit of filmmaking. Yes. You're not going to go back to trying to be an astrophysicist. Although I did end up somehow, it, I did end up crossing paths with physics. Yes. <laughs> you know, on Oppenheimer, which was, that was the craziest thing for me. I was like, when I was talking to Chris about it, I was just like, what? You don't even know. I said, literally, I was, th- I was studying elementary particle physics. Standard model. I was doing it all. I yeah. almost did that. If so. Pattinson's not good in the movie, you could be <laughs> right back there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when you're making Uncut Gems in yeah. good time, I'm curious about your specific role in, in this triptych you, your brother and, and, and Ronnie have mm-hmm. created. Because everyone I've asked about you and your work, they all mention one thing over and over and over again, which is you need to ask him about his role as a boom operator. Yes. And why you do that? Because it's 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 fairly unusual. And for people who don't know, maybe you could describe what that is and, and why you do that. Well, specifically on those, you know, there was this just by pure necessity. But I, in college, I, I've always loved sound, sound design. So I would always learned it, loved it. And then when it came to making... I guess heaven knows what, it was so low budget. I was essentially running boom and recording sound. 
almost like a documentary. You know, mm-hmm. I had it, I literally full on doing it. And then while you're directing. Yeah, because when you, the thing is, is what people don't realize is, except for boom ops, is you're right there. You're in the action with the actors. You're the only person who's really allowed to be in the room with them. And there's something that it did for specifically on Uncut Gems. Maceo was the camera operator and Maceo was the cinematographer on The Curse. We developed like an amazing kind of shorthand because when he was doing Steadicam, I'm right next to him. But you see the full body language. You're not just like looking at the specific frame. You're seeing how best to look at a scene and block a scene and stuff like that. And it just gives you another view and access point into the action that's happening. How do you think doing that job informs both the way you direct and the way you act? It's very, because you're listening, you're hearing everything. You just get a better sense of uh, performance. And when you're acting in a scene, you can direct with from within because you're in control of what you say and how you respond, you know? And so you can navigate in a way that's helpful. And I think that that's just, that was a running boom was a way for me to do that. It's also just like, it's very helpful because I'll also edit. So there's something about the sound and the way that it hits your head and your brain that when you hear it, you can kind of be like, okay, that's the cut point. And I don't, it's just, it's, Mm -hmm. you're almost in post-production in your head, you know, in some way. Has it shaped you as an actor? I mean, you've done, since Uncut Gems, you've had this like four years of, really wall-to-wall performing. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I like acting. And part of what I like about directing is I love performance. And I think performance is a very, it's fleeting. You know, there's something about being able to recreate an emotion that's not there and that's not real and being in that moment. And it's it's almost like um, necromance. Like, isn't that like when bringing people back to up from the dead? You know, it's that element. You're basically, you're playing with something like that where you're, and that's why it's not, it's not healthy. Ronnie has this quote. He says, he was trying to make a movie with you as an actor, but you wouldn't stop crying <laughs> when trying to get into character. Yeah. What is that? Well, then, if you want to take it all the way back in acting, I've been able to get you you are around a lot of different people, you know, and you're you you in different actors, and you're able to learn from them and understand. You have conversations about craft and all that stuff. But I remember I was talking to Ellen Burstyn, just about like crying and all this stuff, okay. and what that. How do you do that? And I said, I don't know. I kind of create an emotional tornado, where you kind of go into this weird place, and you're thinking about all the stuff that happened to you, but you're kind of thinking around it in the situation. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's it she's like you think about the smell of something and that triggers a different memory in your brain and it was like oh there's an actual turn like there's an actual thing that Mm. you do and learn in that way that my emotional tornado thing was that but again i don't necessarily know if you like you don't have to do it to feel it you know what i mean you can access something in your brain that allows you to feel it and i guess with with regards to performance understanding kind of the subtleties and the details of something are helpful. You know, if you, if I'm talking to you right now and I want it to be like, I was upset, you know, what do you do when you're upset? You kind of, you avoid eye contact and you'll just kind of (laughs) like pause on your words and it gets really, (laughs) so the thing is what happens when you do that is it somehow taps into your brain of like, oh yeah, that's what I do when I'm upset. So then you kind of can't help it, but get upset. 
and you start crying. And it is also, there's a lot of, there's bad stuff that happened to me that you can kind of, I can go to and be like, oh, fuck, I don't want to have to feel that again. Mm -hmm. And yet, I guess it's liberating to feel that way in front of people because you're always hiding those emotions. You know, you're always, you never want to cry in front of anybody. So when you do it, it's, it can be liberating. It's embarrassing, but it's, it is a liberating feeling, you know? When you described it as a tornado, I yeah. was just wondering, like, what what is in that flurry that comes to mind? <laughs> you're thinking around bad things, and you're putting yourself in that position. It's not a good place to be. So yeah, you said it was not. It wasn't healthy. It, in a weird way, it is healthy, but it's not healthy to go to dip in, into that when you don't want to. Right. It depends on the levels of the tears. I know when I was working with Ronnie, it was weird because I was. What was hard about that was the person I was playing was that was ended up becoming the guy in good time, you know, and that was based on a lot of my own experiences and issues with mental health and OCD and all these things. And it was kind of overwhelming because with specifically with that character, I couldn't verbalize what it was that was hard for me. I was just coming up against a wall and I'm like. I wanted to say it, but I couldn't. And that was really sad. So I would start crying all the time because I'd be in these situations that were making me uncomfortable. Mm. But by nature of the character, I couldn't express myself. And that's sad. You know, if you feel something really deeply in your head and you understand it, but you can't say it, that's horrible. Which you is know? how I imagine, I, mean, I think many people go through life like that. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's, that's the thing that is difficult because I have myself been in that position where I'm feeling something and I don't know how to say or verbalize it, what it is that I'm upset about. Right. And I think that with kids, that's the case more, you know, because you don't have the ability to to speak or verbalize your opinions. But I guess it's again, this is going back to this idea of recreating reality or whatnot. It's you're kind of trying to recreate the emotions that you feel and that's just like, okay, what are these words that I have to say and how do they connect back into who I am? When Paul reaches out, I'm like, this is fucking awesome. I'm, of course I'm going to do this, you know? He's one of the greatest ever. And This is Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes, and, and licorice, licorice pizza. pizza. And it was like, that was, it was so unbelievable. And then, of course, what you see there, you can't help but learn and, and take it in. And then, you know, you, it's, it's, it's amazing to kind of have that experience and it was just so fun and there was a weird there was a pushing and pulling of wanting to be your best that was so great then the same the similar thing happened you know when on on Oppenheimer everybody's kind of coming in at it trying to do their best why don't we take a look Edward the fact that we built this bomb does not give us any more any more right or responsibility to decide how it's used than anyone else but they're the only people who know about it I've told Simpson the various opinions of the community. But what's your opinion? Once it's used, nuclear war, perhaps all war, becomes unthinkable until somebody builds a bigger one. We're talking about this chapter of yours, and it reminded me of this documentary that appeared on Criterion about you and your brother and it was in pre-production for Uncut Gems. Toward the end of the movie, you two are on the train, and you say, it's one of the first times we can see one or two things ahead, 
and we always thought the road ended at gems. That basically every film you made up until that point was a stepping stone to uncut gems. And I guess I wondered, like, when when that came out and it did what it did, given that you couldn't imagine a life beyond it, how did you go about mapping the road ahead? Well, that's the thing is, is it w- the practical meaning of that was after Daddy Longlegs, we wanted to make Uncut Gems. That was just the next thing we wanted to do. Wasn't in the cards. So we made a bunch of other stuff in between. Right. So when that was done, it was like, okay, not only is what do you do next, but it's also just a matter of you now have the ability to do something next in the sense that you go back to like when I was before, is this something that I'm going to be able to do? Do I have to find another career to like provide? Right. And so it was the first time that that had happened that you have actually have, you can see a little bit into the future, you know? I think it was just a matter of like in that period, there was also a pandemic and all that stuff. Did that, did the pandemic and all these like new roles coming about that we've talked about, the yeah. Oppenheimer, like yeah. the, did it make you rethink wanting to direct with your brother? Um, I don't know. I was just kind of going with the flow. Right. That's all it was, is something came up. <sighs> hey, that sounds like fun. I would like to do that. You know, <laughs> and then Jim Brooks calls me and says, hey, I want you to do this, this movie, the, the Judy Bloom, Are You There, God? And Kelly calls me and she says she wants me to play a father. And I'm like, oh, my God, nobody's ever asked me to play a father. I am a father. You know, I'm like, I'm a father of two kids in an interfaith marriage. Like, this is exactly what this movie is about. Right. Nobody has ever asked me to do that before. So I was like, this is a great place for me to express that part of who I am. It wasn't necessarily a conscious decision. It was more like, okay, this is a way for me to explore right now, you know, and it's all about learning. I think it's all part of one larger process, but the the whole thing is a struggle to verbalize your emotions because that's what all this is. Whenever you put anything down, you're trying to say something and you're trying to do something. So it's just a matter of like, you're trying to figure out the best way to do that. And in certain moments, it's this in other moments, it's this, but I think that they don't, they do talk to each other and they allow you to get better and better yourself in a lot of ways. So I wonder as we look back and then look ahead, you know, like daddy long legs, we said it was a way to relive your childhood, but it also killed it. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about uncut gems, I wonder like if it had the same effect in some ways, like it was a film that represented the shared ambitions and interests of you and your brother, literally starring the actor that raised you both and me. Yeah. And like, and in making it, I don't know, did it kill some part of a shared dream and did it open the door for something new? It's funny because I'm not thinking about it in that way. And when you pose the question, I'm like, oh yeah, that maybe, you know, but it's like specifically with that movie, it was like we, it, it had had all this pent up, demand, you know, and everything was kind of like, okay, now we have all these tools to tell this story, you know, and then you tell it and you're like, and again, it's this now what kind of thing, Mm -hmm. what do you want to do? And so that, that question just becomes kind of the guiding force is like, well, what do I want to do? I don't know. (laughs) You know, what's interesting is, is right before the gems, Nathan and I actually pitched the curse in 2018. And then it it stayed dormant until after. And then the pandemic hit. And then there was all this time. And 
And then Emma came on board and it was a whole long process to that. And it was, again, it was, it was an organic kind of thing where you're just kind of letting things happen. And maybe that's, I guess, the key is you don't want to set up a wall to avoid things that you don't necessarily know. You know, I'm far from like a Buddhist person. You know, I would love to be that. I have a hat that says be here now, you know. There's this idea that that's the place to be. And of course, if you're an anxious person, that's impossible. <laughs> you know, you, you are there, but you're so in the now that it hurts. And then you're also thinking about the future. What's this? What's that? Or what about the past? How'd this happen? And you're kind of asking all these questions. But if you're open to what the world is going to show you, maybe you will be in a better place because you'll listen, you know? I do. Well, I think as we leave the... Uh... That moment where you figured out what you wanted to do. Yeah. Do you remember that day in class you were like going to be an astrophysicist and your teacher explained to you sort of story structure? Oh, yes, yes. Like what happened that day to, to button this Oppenheimer thing up here? Okay, so basically this is in high school. I was part of this extracurricular science program where... It was so much work. It was in, it was essentially as much time outside of school as in school. I would go and learn with this teacher at Columbia University. He was trying to set up all of these particle detectors on every school in the city. You create these small kind of garbage can with a photoelectric detector in the in the top. You line it with aluminum. There's something called Cherenkov radiation for when these high energy particles hit water. It emits this radiation as light. The light is picked up by the sensor. The sensor goes to a computer, which is on an oscilloscope, and it shows you the moment. If you have a moment at exactly the same time, because these things are moving at the speed of light, which is exactly the same speed, you can then trace from that moment back upwards to when the particle entered the atmosphere. So this idea that the more of these things you have, the bigger the detector, because things will happen at the same time. So anyway, that was what he was planning to do, and that's what I was helping try and prove as a proof of concept, whatever. But in that process, I have to explain that to somebody else. And part of the class was teach it to other people. And the process of taking that information that's internal in your head and having to say it to somebody else, that process is where you understand it. It's easy to understand, but to explain it is hard. So he was saying to me, he wrote down on the piece of paper, he's like, this is, he said, I'm here at A. This is the end is at Z. And then he takes his pen and he just draws this hor horrific kind of spiral mess of like a snake. And then he finally ends up at Z. He goes, your job is to take me from A all the way to Z. Never let go of my hand is what he said. Take me all the way along that path. And it's crazy. But if you get me from A to Z, I'll understand it. But then when you look behind you, you have no idea how you got there but that's it. You understood it. So then I remembered seeing that, learning that. And then I think I watched The General by Buster Keaton. And I was like, oh, wait a second. This is the same thing. You know, you have this story that goes from A to Z and it's complete madness and craziness all throughout it, but he's walking you through. And then the jokes are almost like physics problems. Mm -hmm. And you're at that moment, everything was kind of coming together in a lot of ways. And so I think what ended up happening was I went to school for both and I realized you can't do that. You have to pick one. And so 
I picked movies, you know, I went to BU, Josh said, come to this class. It was a class on this guy, Ted Barron, who was a teacher there, and he showed a neorealist movie and it was mind blowing, you know? So that's when I was like, okay, maybe this is the wrong place for me because you can't toe dip with both feet, you know, because they're in opposite directions. So you have to choose, choose what it is that you want to do and do that. It's still very present in my mind because the things I learned in physics tell me about narrative. You know, they tell me about story. And if you can explain something, then that also helps you with directing, you know, and because you can tell somebody, you can kind of walk them through the process. And so I like to think that everything is interconnected in that way. And it's a shame string theory is no longer like the, the right thing because it made sense, you know. Feynman said, the world is a dynamic mess of jiggling things. And it's only based on perspective on whether or not you see it or not. For example, when you see an old newspaper on the, on the ground and a rubber band is around it, let's say it's sitting there for 100 years. He goes, Made the rubber band wouldn't last that long. But he goes, what's happening in that rubber band is you have all these particles banging when it's stretched. They're, they're banging because it's getting heated up by, the, by the, the stretching of the rubber band. And those particles are banging the rubber band and keeping that newspaper together. He goes, that's how he sees the world. And that's crazy. And I remember I actually asked somebody because in the there's in one scene, all the scientists from Los Alamos were actually in one of the scenes in um, in Oppenheimer. It was a in like there was like a party. And so I was just talking to him and I said, that's something that I can't imagine going through the world like that. That would drive me crazy. And he looked at me and said, it would drive me crazy if I go went through the world the way that you saw it. Because for me, there's some comfort in knowing that information and to each his own, you know, and he's right. He's like, I feel I understand the world in a very deep and meaningful way. And that's okay. That I, when I look at a rubber band, I don't see a rubber band. I see beneath the rubber band and I see the particles moving. And that allows me to understand the world. Well, we started this conversation talking about the surface level nature of the curse. Yes. We have now gone so far below. Yes. <laughs> and I think we have hit something true and honest. And I'm glad you uh, held our hands. Okay. I hope so. Through the process. Yeah, every once in a while, I felt like maybe I let go and I looked back and I was like, oh, wait. Where, I, where? I have a long enough arm. It's okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and to the, to the young kid in college wondering if they should jump in and not just dip their toe. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you jumped in, and I so look forward to seeing what's next. Amazing. I appreciate that. Thank you. Benny Safty, a pleasure. Thank you. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to go above and beyond sharing the program with a friend or posting on social media, all of that really does help new listeners find Talk Easy. Special thanks this week to Haley Benton Gates, Rail Shulman, Jennifer Vendetti, Christopher Nolan, and Jason Birch. I'd also like to thank Liz Mahoney and Narrative PR, Universal, and Showtime. 
You can watch new episodes of The Curse Weekly on Paramount Plus or the Showtime On Demand app. If you'd like to learn more about the show or more about our guest, Benny Safdie, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once there, you'll find other great episodes with actors including Britt Marling, Oscar Isaac, Tom Hanks, Bill Hader, and Bob Odenkirk. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sf at talkeasypod.com. That's sf at talkeasypod.com. You can also purchase one of our mugs. They come in cream or navy. Or our vinyl record with writer Fran Leibowitz at talkeasypod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Snars, Carrie Brody, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, Greta Cohen, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.